0: Hello and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today we'll be examining the topic of the most recent issue of Strategica, what is the likely trajectory of Chinese-Japanese tensions…  … and how will the United States be effective? And we are joined today by the author of one of the essays in this issue, Mark Moyer, senior fellow at the Joint Special Operations University and a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. Mark, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. So let me start here uh, actually with the opening sentence of your piece in the newest issue of Strategica, the message of which is essentially if you don't like the status quo with China and Japan, don't expect a case for optimism anytime soon … Quoting you here, quote, if underlying geopolitical factors are the overriding cause of the recent decline in relations between China and Japan, then the current trajectory is likely to persist for there is little reason to believe that those factors will change. Okay, explain that, Mark. Why are we stuck?
1: Well, for one thing, we've got a competition between China and Japan for natural resources, which uh, by all indications is something that is – not going to go away given that China is industrializing at a very rapid pace. And so both China and Japan have a need for the the hydrocarbons in the East China Sea. Uh, They both have a need for fishing rights there to feed their very large population. So you have a competition there that, uh, you know, underlies this and is to some extent the cause of some of the troubles. Uh, You also have a... uh, underlying competition between China and Japan over who is going to be the dominant power in, in Asia. And, and both of those countries have a history of playing that role. And so if you look at it in terms of just those structural factors, that which do seem to be enduring, that uh, we may not see much, much of a change. Uh, again, those are not necessarily the only factors, but in terms of the political structural factors it, it seems like we're not going to see much uh, difference
0: i want to follow up on something you said there that you also mentioned in your piece the fact that there are similar dynamics at work in both countries in terms of them thinking that their rightful place is at the top of the heap in in east asia what are the forces at work on, on both sides in china and japan that that lead them to think that
1: well we've certainly seen a rise in nationalism in in china in recent decades and they Marxist Leninist doc, doc, ideology that prevailed there uh, from much of the 20th century has, has subsided, and and so we're now seeing within the top ranks of the government this sense that it's time to bring China back to its historic place as the the uh, dominant power within within Asia. Uh, within Japan, we're also seeing something of a resurgence of nationalism. And after World War II, the there was this Rising pacifism and nationalism was was uh, frowned upon and discouraged, but we're now seeing that uh, Japan also uh, has a, a rising element, although not the only element, that is arguing that it's time to reinvigorate the, the nation's uh, historical role in terms of being the, the country that that all others in the region look up to.
0: Is that driven in part by the potential threat from China? Is it is it generational because you're getting further away from, from World War II? What's driving that in Japan?
1: Yeah, that is certainly a big part of it, the, the fear of a resurgent China. I think it also certainly has something to do with the generational change in that you know, for the current generation of political leadership, World War II is now a distant uh, memory. Right. And, the other factor you have is that the United States is now diminishing uh, or seems to to be playing less of a role, and that's creating greater fear within Japan that they need to look out for themselves rather than being able to count on the United States.
0: So walk us through how this plays out. If there's no reason to think that the underlying dynamics, the sort of abiding hostility is going to change, because you still say in your piece that the chances of a full-blown war between China and Japan … look small. So why is that and what are the flashpoints likely to look like if we're not talking about sort of conventional military exchanges?
1: You know, I think given the fear of nuclear war, I do think it's still quite unlikely we would see a you know, full-scale war between China and Japan. But you know, the Chinese, I think from watching what has been going on with Russia… And I think they have a sense that they can undertake smaller provocations that will, uh, that, that they can get away with, especially given how the current U.S. administration seems to be reluctant to really take a stand on these things. So, uh, what I think, you know, one example that I think serves as a potential model for what the Chinese will do is the Scarborough Shoal, where they came in and asserted uh, control over an area that the Philippines owned by most accounts and uh, you know, didn't actually resort to violence but but used pressure and put put economic and other kinds of pressure on the Philippines and outlasted the Philippine Navy there and uh, so you know, J- Japan also does not have a a particularly strong Navy at this point and we're seeing the US presence diminish so we may see China try to move into Disputed island areas to try to claim hydrocarbon rights fishing rights, so there's certainly a potential for for uh, some kind of conflict there and of course you know there is always a possibility that something small could turn into something bigger although again I think probably in the near future we're not likely to see a major conflagration but you know the Chinese seem to recognize it better to keep to just push things uh, at, a, at a simmer and uh, and to play for the long haul,
0: I want to follow up on that thought there about the size of the naval presence in the region. What effect mark is the are the reductions in American military spending, particularly when it comes to the navy, going to have on the situation in East Asia?
1: Well, certainly, for a long time and, and today, I think as well the u s naval presence is a bellwether for all the countries in the region in terms of who is really the dominant power and uh, is there someone who's willing to contest chinese dominance Uh, and we're already seeing as a consequence of the the budget cuts of the last few years plus the problems going on in the middle east that uh, we're going to see the lack of a u.s carrier in uh, east asia for the first time since world war ii for, for a fairly extended period so that, uh, I think, number one, will un- undermine confidence in the U.S. Uh, and will fr- encourage possible provocations by the Chinese. Uh, in the longer term, you know, what we're seeing, too, is that the Japanese may decide they're going to increase their Navy to compensate for that, although that's going to take a long time. And so uh, China may see a window of opportunity in the near term to take advantage of
0: that. There's a sentiment it seems to me in some foreign policy circles um, in America that the Japanese will always eventually come home to the United States. The the logic behind the alliance there is too strong for any alternative path to make that much sense. Are we too blithely confident – confident rather about the future of American-Japanese relations?
1: Uh, Yes, I I do think we are, and and if you go back into – History of the Cold War. There were times where it actually looked like Japan and China were were coming closer to each other, and it was driven then and, and I think today as well by the perception that the United States is no longer willing to or able to play the role of of a dominant air and naval power in the region, and so you, there will be some in Japan again. This is an this is something where it's. Certainly not preordained. I think it could go either way, but there's certainly some in Japan who, rather than try to rearm in a massive way and take the place of U.S. power, uh, will be willing to come to some sort of accommodation with the Chinese uh, to avoid war. There is still a pretty strong pacifist element within the country, so that's another potential danger of of U.S. retrenchment is that Japan will will agree to play probably a lesser role than China in in the interest of uh, harmony within East Asia.
0: And we're probably safe to assume in that scenario that whatever cultural antagonisms there are between China and Japan don't get in the way of that kind of agreement. Precisely because it for the on the Chinese side, precisely because it works to the Chinese advantage.
1: Yes, and, and you know the um, you know, we'll have to see how it ultimately plays out because I mean, you could certainly argue that with this rising nationalism that that's going to prevent this sort of accommodation. But you do have definitely China or in Japan, but probably also to some extent China, a you know an element that considers itself to be more cosmopolitan and above these sorts of right. uh, old-fashioned antagonisms.
0: So, Mark, we started with the opening sentence of your essay. Let's close with the final one, quoting you again. The United States must do its best to influence these decisions. Um, These are the decisions of individual Japanese and Chinese leaders, while recognizing that it may have to deal with decisions it does not like. Okay, how do we do that? What are our main priorities from the United States' perspective in managing these relationships into the future?
1: I think the biggest one is – Maintaining U.S. military strength in the region, because you know, we're already seeing signs that there is a lack of confidence in U.S. staying power, and when we talk about trying to contain China and, and to to uh, create friendships with the countries on its periphery, you know their willingness to do to side with us is directly proportional to our perceived strength. So. That is uh, is certainly the top priority. I think also in terms of just, uh, public messaging, uh, the United States has to be careful in terms of how it uh, portrays itself. Uh, you know, again we see in the Russian case where the United States uh, announced essentially it was not going to contest Russia's prov- uh, provocation. So in terms of Posture. I think there's a need to to demonstrate resolve. Again, you need the military
0: strength to be able to make that credible. Our guest has been Mark Moyer, senior fellow at the Joint Special Operations University and a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. You can read his essay and those by other members of the group by visiting us online at hoover.org forward slash strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. Mark, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks very much, Troy.
0: For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Strategica, and I'm Victor Davis Hanson.